This is the Yale University Press podcast. I'm Jessica Hallahan, and my guest is Oswaldo Chinchilla Masariegos. Oswaldo is a professor in the Department of Anthropology here at Yale and a curator at the Peabody Museum of Natural History. His distinguished body of research and writing focuses on Mesoamerican art and religion. And this fall, he is a co-curator of an extraordinary exhibition called Lives of the Gods, Divinity in Maya Art, which is now on view at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. He's also a co-editor and contributor to the fantastic exhibition catalog that accompanies the show. Um, And the the show itself in the spring of 2023 will move to the Kimball Art Museum in Fort Worth, Texas, where it will be on view from May 7th until September 3rd, 2023. Oswaldo is also the author of a recent book called Art and Myth of the Ancient Maya, which came out in paperback earlier this year. And I am so pleased to have the opportunity to talk to him about both books. Oswaldo, the the stories in these books are as fascinating as the images in them are stunning. Can you talk a little bit about the types and variety of objects that are represented here, the objects that we have now that have been passed down through a lot of history that tell us about the lives and the mythology of the ancient Maya? And can you also situate them in terms of the time frame and the geography associated with the objects? The majority of objects that um, appear in these books are ceramic objects that are either painted or modeled with very elaborate uh, representations related to uh, Maya myths and religious beliefs. They, they date uh, mostly from the, the, what we call the classic period, which is between 250 and 900 AD. And the reason is because at that time there was a very strong, um, very strong uh, flourishing of uh, artistic representations in in the Maya area. To a lesser extent, there are also representations on on stone sculptures and uh, uh, mural paintings, uh, notably the the mural paintings from San Bartolo, which are a little bit earlier than than the dates that I'm I'm telling you. But they also also contain a very rich uh, corpus of mythological representations. Lastly, I, w- I would also include uh, the Maya codices, which are books um, that were painted and written on paper, and date uh, those date to the post-classic period, uh, that is, to the century or two before the arrival of the Spaniards to this region of the world in the 16th century. And the images on these, do they represent a more or less cohesive body of iconography, or is there a, a progression? Well, despite the, the surprising, um, the, despite the long span of time that we're talking about, there is a fairly consistent uh, corpus of beliefs. Um, Maya, Maya, Maya people are very resilient in uh, preserving elements of their culture from very early times, even until the present. And uh, in these books, I also take advantage of the um, knowledge possessed by members of modern communities 
who still tell stories that uh, can be related in some cases to ancient representations. That is pretty incredible. The, both books reference, though, that there, there is debate in your field about how to interpret some of the things that you see on the, um, the objects from the classic Maya period. What do some of the debates focus on and what, what, what are the hurdles to, to coming to a resolution about what these are? Some of the debates have to do with the, the nature of the sources that we have. So, so for one thing, they are the, the pictorial sources and uh, are, are spread um, through a vast uh, period of time. And so we, we should think that uh, the, the beliefs of uh, Maya peoples did not remain totally stable through that period. In addition to that, the, we, we do have some contemporary information that's available from the Maya inscriptions, Maya hieroglyphic inscriptions that uh, are deciphered uh, to a large extent. Only in the last few decades we have been able to read the contents of the Maya inscriptions and, and that's a tremendous advance. But the problem is that uh, the inscriptions are generally very terse. They, they tell us a few sentences of stories that were known to everyone, probably. And so they don't, they were, they were not intended to, to explain to us all the contents of the pictorial representations that uh, are, were also made by, by, the, by the, the same people. The other a source of information that we have comes from uh, early colonial documents uh, that were written by Maya uh, writers in the, in the, in the um, beginning around the middle of the 16th century. Those are the more detailed sources that we have. Uh, and they include the Popol Vuh, an important book that was written by members of the noble houses of the Quiche Kingdom in the Guatemalan Highlands shortly after the Spanish uh, invasion. The problem is linking all of these sources together and also with uh, the modern narratives that I mentioned before that are uh, still retold by uh, members of Maya communities. Um, there are surprising continuities, but it, uh, that does not mean that uh, the, um, the stories and beliefs uh, remain completely stable. For the modern narratives, we also have to take into account the input of uh, European and uh, uh, African beliefs that may be present in some of them. And so it's a, a big challenge. Um, and yet, um, so, so that would lead uh, some to basically discard the possibility of interpreting ancient Maya art based on, say, uh, stories that were recorded uh, 50 years ago or even even less, uh, 10 or 20 years ago in places in the Guatemalan highlands. I do not share that, uh, uh, that uh, approach. I, I believe that there are ways in which we can take advantage of all that knowledge and uh, um, apply it for the interpretation of ancient Maya art. So that leads me to 
to a couple other questions. The first is, what what happened in the past few decades that allowed researchers and scholars to better interpret the inscriptions, the sort of captions that you that you mentioned earlier? Well, the decipherment of Maya inscriptions uh, was a, a long process, um, beginning in the 19th century with the um, interpretation of the of the calendar, which was pretty much unraveled by scholars at that time. Uh, in the mid 20th century, there was a significant breakthrough by a Russian uh, scholar, Yuri Knorosov, who um, advanced um, a, a method for reading the Maya hieroglyphs um, and um, make, made it uh, um, understandable in terms of what we know about writing systems all over the world in general, the way they work. Um, however, these um, breakthroughs were only slowly, very slowly absorbed by scholars working elsewhere in the world. And really, it, it, it's only in the 19, beginning in the 1980s that um, that the pace of decipherment advanced. So this consisted in being able to read the phonetic um, values of syllables and word signs that form Maya writing. Those signs combine together in very complex ways. And the Maya writing is um, pictorially elaborate. Um, it's um, So the, sh the shape of the signs are... are are sometimes very elaborate, um, and they combine in very creative ways. The scribes were very keen at uh, um, displaying their virtuosity, their knowledge of the system, and, uh, and so that complicates things for us. However, um, thanks to these breakthroughs, uh, we are now able to read a substantial portion of uh, the Maya inscriptions. And, there are uh, objects uh, that are illustrated in, in those books that, for example, have a, an episode, depict an episode from a mythical narrative, and they have text that at least gives us a few names or maybe explains one or two of the things that happened. Um, there are very few that have more than that, that have just a couple of sentences. But, as, but, but we should think that these were uh, just excerpts from very long and elaborate narratives that are now missing. Um, we, in, so, in some cases, we have uh, later versions of those narratives preserved in colonial documents or uh, preserved orally by Maya peoples so up to the present. Um, and the challenge is to, to try to put that together. My own approach is to try to focus on the core elements of the narratives. So when you read or listen to a, to a narrative, it will have uh, lots of things happening. Um, someone goes to some place, someone, um, say, um, kills someone else, someone... Um, uh, marries someone else, and that sort of thing. Those incidents may vary. Those incidents may vary a lot uh, in different variants of, uh, of, of narratives. However, there are core elements that persist. 
uh, and this is uh, this approach is based on the scholarship of a great uh, Mexican uh, anthropologist, uh, Alfredo Lopez Austin, who who um, built a, uh, a, a a whole set of theories and methods to approach the the interpretation of Mesoamerican narratives. So what I try to to find in the in the representations is how the Maya artists um, portray the the incidental elements of uh, narratives, but also focused on their core elements. So the episodes that they portray are selected because they are significant, and uh, they're significant because they. Um, tell us more than just uh, just uh, the incidents that um, that that may vary in an in the brush of another artist right and and so the and the other thing i wanted to ask you to talk a little bit more about is the popolo which does offer a lot more in terms of detailed narrative um, but uh, of course came a lot later. So I would love for you to talk a little bit about the circumstances that, you know, what we know about the circumstances around its creation and also what the what the drawbacks are to over-reliance on that text when trying to interpret um, the the objects and the the pictographs of earlier Maya. The origin of the Popol Vuh is um, uh, something that we know uh, only very superficially. Uh, the, the copy of the manuscript that subsists to the present is, uh, comes from the 18th century, and it was done by uh, a Dominican friar um, who was a, a member of the Dominican religious order in, in Guatemala, who transcribed an older text in the Quiche language. It, it is some, sometimes uh, people tend to think that the Popol Vuh is a hieroglyphic manuscript. But no, it was uh, written using uh, the European alphabet, an adaptation of the European alphabet um, to, to write the Quiche language. So Francisco Jimenez, the Dominican friar who did the first translation, copied the Quiche um, um, manuscript and also added a translation to Spanish. So that is what we have. Now, how did that originate? Where, where exactly was it uh, made? Probably in, in, in the town of Santa Cruz del Quiche, because it, um, that is mentioned at the end of the document. Who made it? Well, there are some references to um, noble members of noble houses in the Quiche at the, at the end of the manuscript as well. But um, they don't mention names. It, it, it has no signature. Um, for what purpose? Why was it made? So the, um, the authors actually state the purpose of uh, um, that um, and say that uh, there was an older book, that there was an old book which can no longer be seen. And so that is why they're writing. So that is at least one of their aims. The question is whether they simply um, took this idea of um, we should preserve our traditions or whether 
they were also stimulated to do that by their interaction with uh, the friars, with the Catholic friars who were preaching uh, Christianity to, to them, but were also invested in knowing the um, aspects of the pre-Columbian religion. So the idea was that uh, they, they needed to know the beliefs of the local people in order to be able to, to tell them that they're wrong, right? <laughs> to, tell them, to tell them how, how wrong they were. <laughs> Uh, no, and, and I mean it's um, it was official policy. Mm. It was there are they were required to compile um, the beliefs of of indigenous peoples in Mexico and Guatemala, and that is the reason why uh, several books of this kind were made in both in Mexico and, and Guatemala. So so all these reasons may be uh, together, but the result was that um, that they produced a um, a narrative of the or of the origins of their ruling houses to explain that to explain how they were um, they established they finally were able to establish their cities their kingship and their dominion over uh, a fairly extensive part of the Western Guatemalan highlands, they start in mythical times. They start by telling us about how the gods came together and they started trying to find ways to um, to, to create uh, people, but not only people. Um, there are three components that they wanted to, to bring about. And those were the sun and the moon, the having having a sun and a moon to shine over people. The next was sustenance, having something that people could uh, sustain themselves with, which is maize, uh, still the staple of uh, most people in Guatemala and Mexico. And the third was people. Um, but specifically, people who would be able to uh, worship them, and and worshiping them meant uh, to sustain them. Basically, the gods um, needed to be sustained themselves. They needed their own, their own sustenance, their own food, and uh, and that was to be provided by people. So, the rest of the book is an explanation of how all of that happened. But there are, there are many questions. For, uh, some, some people even uh, believe that the, that the Popol Vuh is not entirely coherent, that it may be made up from different stories that were separate and then they were put together in the same manuscript somehow. I, I, I do not think that. I, I think that there's a very clear um, purpose in the selection of the narratives that they included. And that had to do with, uh, um, with those three aspects, but also with uh, a selection of the narratives that were relevant to explain the later emergence of the Quiche themselves, and specifically their, their kings, their ruling houses. So the, 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 the authors of the Popol Vuh were not doing an ethnographic compilation 
they were not interested in compiling everything. They're new. They, uh, there are many narratives that are very important still in, in the Guatemalan highlands and do not appear in the Popol Vuh. And we should not think that they in, invented them in the colonial period or more recently. These are very ancient narratives, and some can be related to elements of Maya art. Um, but they simply are not present in the Popol Vuh. And then in, sometimes in the Popol Vuh, they just tell, tell us a single sentence or a couple of sentences and allude to something. And then you find another narrative where all of this is explained in, in a lot more detail. So, so those are the challenges of working with the Popol Vuh. Uh, of course, in the first place, it's written in Quiche. And so uh, the problem of translation is important. Fortunately, we now have uh, several translations to English, uh, Spanish, uh, German, French, other languages uh, that um, are, are scholarly and, and useful. And they're also very approachable for um, general readers. Um, you, you can you can read it almost as uh, you know children's stories amusing they're they're funny in many ways and the same is true for for representations in ancient maya art they are not necessarily something that's severe or you know um graceless um they're they're very often intended to be funny yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, some of the stories, as I mentioned at the beginning, are are truly wonderful. Um, and I was going to ask if you wouldn't mind, you know, picking one, picking your favorite, or just a, a, a particularly good story and and telling telling it. In Maya art, one of the important mythical themes that we see in ceramic painting relates to the myths of the maize god, and uh, the maize god is uh, always portrayed as a youth, as a young man sometimes a, a baby. And uh, the things that they, the, the episodes that they preferred to portray related to the maize god's birth. And there are several versions. Uh, in, some, in, in, in one of them, he is um, um, coming out from the, the, the rhizome of a, of a water lily. It always happens in water, you know? So he's uh, resting like a baby on, on his back on top of this water lily. Um, there is another version in which uh, he's coming out of a split turtle carapace. So he was inside the, the turtle and uh, then he comes out. Um, in the San Bartolo murals, which are so early, we see a representation of this turtle and like as, as an X-ray figure, and the turtle is swimming in dark waters. But uh, the, the carapace is like, like X-rayed. Uh, we see the interior, and in the interior, there are two gods that are sitting on either side, and the maize god is in the middle, dancing, playing instruments, like and in a very... <laughs> Uh, dynamic pose. Yeah. Um, so he's a he's a musician. He's a, he's a singer. The other episode that is uh, often represented is shows the maize god uh, with woman. There are all these young, beautiful 
women barely dressed generally who are coming to him, surrounding him. It can be only one woman and up to six women who are sometimes they seem to be like fixing his uh, loincloth, uh, showing a mirror to him so that he can watch himself. Now the question is, um, how do we put all this together? I mean, is there a narrative there? How, how do we order all these episodes in, in some way? And there are different versions. <laughs> different authors have come up with, with different explanations. And there are a few objects that are especially important because they show two or three of these episodes together, like in a sequence. Right? It, still, there's the problem of where the sequence begins and where does it end, whether there were missing episodes that were not depicted there or what. So um, that is the challenge. So for me, I think that we should try to compare it with uh, with stories about uh, the maze heroes in, in Mesoamerica, not only in the Maya area, but also in other parts of Mesoamerica, because um, the Maya were closely in, in, in close contact with other peoples who not, didn't necessarily speak Maya languages, but um, their uh, religious beliefs uh, were not exactly the same, but uh, very close to each other. Um, and so when, when we come to this comparison, um, it appears that the, the story begins um, when the maize god died. And, uh, and this happened when, uh, when he's surrounded by the ladies, you know. He's, he's frolicking in water with, uh, with all these beautiful women. And, and, you know, he's very handsome. He's, a, he's, he's a, the epitome of male beauty. He's uh, young and he has a very long face, um, an elongated head that the Maya appreciated much. His skin is, you know, shiny. And he's covered with jewels, uh, usually. The, all of this relates to the to the the way they appreciated the the maize plant itself, right? As a, something precious, and this is what provided sustenance for them. Um, so, so he's let's say perfect, but um, when when playing with a woman in water, that's a moral failure, you know. He, this is not something that's uh, um, the correct thing to do, right? Um, if we compare it with, uh, with, uh, with what we see in, in, in modern narratives, every, in, in Mesoamerican narratives, every time that a, uh, someone con comes under the, the um, allure of a woman and falls into this kind of temptation, that person dies or is, is lost somehow. And, uh, and that's, uh, that's um, the way they saw it. Um, and in, the, in Maya representations, we see the maize god surrounded by this woman and then the very short inscriptions that are attached on, on, on two ceramic vessels uh, that are painted on the same vessel tell us the maize god dies. That's, he enters the water. That's the metaphor 
that they use to, to refer to death. He enters the water. And this is very literal because in the next episode, we see him in a canoe. We see him uh, being taken. There are all these paddlers, paddler, we call them the paddler gods, who are um, taking the canoe and, uh, and the, mole, the mace god is going along in the canoe and he's crying. He's, he has the sadness in his face, you know. In some in very famous representations um, on the incised bones that were deposited in the tomb of a great ruler from Tikal, from the city of Tikal in northern Guatemala, there are whole uh, a group of animals, a monkey, an iguana, um, and others who are also crying. They're like, <laughs> and sometimes the ladies themselves are crying, you know, in, in these representations. So the maize god dies. The next thing that happens is that he's born, right? So he comes again uh, back to life, apparently, in one of those different versions that I that I mentioned. Um, he um, perhaps uh, perhaps uh, resembling, you know, the cycle of the maize plant, which which is born every year and then dies, and but only to be reborn again. The point is that that um, this is, um, uh, when, when we read the uh, narratives um, telling about uh, these, uh, um, these young heroes who are tempted by women, but some resist and some don't. The ones who resist are, you know, starker and, you know, uh, destined to do great things, certainly like uh, becoming the sun, for example. But the maze god, uh, the maze god fails. He just dies. Still, it's, it's a, um, a failure that has very important creative uh, uh, results, you know, because it has to do with fertility. It has to do with reproduction. It has to do, you know, with the continuation of life itself. Is the... Uh is the cycle of death and rebirth unique to the maze god, or there are, are there other gods who die only to be born again? Well, in, in Maya myths, uh, some of the gods uh, may die violently in some cases, but they are still gods, even if they fail, you know? Even, even uh, if, if they are, you know, evil, they are regarded as... as uh, mm, bad guys in, in some story, then we find them, um, you know, portrayed in monumental art, nevertheless, and uh, in glory. And um, yeah, there's uh, one of the, the episodes that are also were also favorites for the Maya, where was the story of this uh, great uh, avian being, this bird. In the Popol Vuh, uh, he's, call, he's called Seven Mako. And they tell us that he pretended to shine like the sun. He, he, he pretended to be the sun and the moon, and he was also covered with jewels. Um, but uh, he didn't really shed that much warmth, only a little bit of brightness, the reflection of his uh, jewels, the jewels that he had. So he was not really the sun, and he had to be defeated. It's, uh, it's like the, the, the true sun could not come out while he was there. So the heroes who would eventually become the sun and the moon uh, defeat him. 
Now this, uh, and they do so by um, by shooting their blowguns against him and bringing him down. And there are a lot of other episodes that are uh, involved in this in this story. Um, so in in Maya art, we find um, representations of the big birds sp spreading the wings, and you know, in a very proud and very imposing um, attitude. And then the heroes who will shoot him down are down there with their blowguns. And um, <clears throat> we should think that they succeeded, you know, in, in, in killing him just like they did in the Popol Vuh. But still, in other representations, we find this same bird um, perching over the the um, the thrones of the kings, on the on the moment of where the where, when the kings are being, um, you know, invested in power, they are sometimes wearing the headdress with the figure of this bird, and so that's that's a paradox. It's it's hard to explain, but. Uh, we don't we don't have a, a detailed story of how this of whether this bird is supposed to to come back to life but but the fact that he dies is no um that does not mean the uh, the fact that he dies does not mean that he is uh, no longer important yeah that that idea points to something else that I <clears throat> that I felt I picked up on as I was reading through these books and through the stories was that there were interesting polarities that came up through a number of um, the myths of the ancient Mayas, as, as they're told here, the polarity of human and God, the polarity of frailty and power, or, you know, death and rebirth, defeat and glory. There's a, a God um, who is often depicted with spots all over him, and it's it's understood that those are meant to indicate illness. Um, is that something that that um, that you feel, you know, is a does that make sense first of all? And also, you know, is that a, an interesting entry point to understanding how the ancient Maya might have understood, um, you know, their role in the world, their cosmology, their that um, character that you mentioned, the, um, this young god with. Uh, spots all over his body is especially interesting to me because um, he was um, first identified in Maya ceramics by Michael Cole, a uh, former professor, a uh, great professor from our department at Yale University. And uh, we owe him a lot um, of the of the uh, early studies of uh, Maya religion and uh, and the interpretation of representations in Maya vessels, uh, especially, and he was um, also the first to seriously link these representations with uh, the narratives of the Popol Vuh. And um, he uh, this this uh, in in the in in Maya representations in classic Maya representations this uh, spotted god is the one who is uh, shooting the great bird with his uh, blowgun, actually. So the, the logical consequence, if we, if we um, 
look at uh, if we take into account uh, uh, Cole's um, interpretation of this um, as related to the narratives of the Popol Vuh, the logical consequence is that the spotted god is the solar hero, right? Because that's the one who defeated the bad bird, you know? In the Popol Vuh, the, the hero who defeated, the, the, it's a pair of twin heroes who defeated um, seven Mako, eventually become the sun and the moon. That's their destiny. So it should be the same in Maya art, right? But that hasn't really been um, coded in follow-up with that logic, and uh, and that hasn't been um, 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 a, a part of the standard interpretation of these uh, vessels until now. Until I am I am making suggestions about that in these publications, right? But uh, I think the, the spots are very significant, the spots on the skin, because I interpret them as postules, as, uh, you know, sores that cover the skin of, uh, of this young god. Um, in the Popol Vuh, they don't mention that uh, attribute. You know, they, they don't describe the physical aspect of, of these twin heroes at all. They just tell us that they were young men. Uh, but if we look at other narratives, f both in the Maya area and in other parts of Mesoamerica, uh, it turns out that uh, sickness is one of the um, important attributes of the solar hero. So the best known versions are, are from, from Highland Mexico. They are um, versions from the Nahua or Aztec or from Highland Mexico. And they tell us how this sickly hero was, a uh, sickly god, was chosen to become the son. Um, and he was the, the least likely to, to, uh, to fulfill that role because he was poor, sickly, uh, with no relatives, with no, um, um, not, no wealth, not with no, without wealth. And, uh, and they contrast him with with another character, with another god who was the total the total opposite, uh, rich, handsome, um, you know, uh, wealthy, with many relatives, and um, and eventually what happens is that uh, the handsome guy tries but uh, does not succeed in in doing the ultimate sacrifice, which consisted in throwing himself in a in a pyre. In a blazing pyre, you know, he tries and he can't. Then the the the, the sickly guy, the sickly god, um, just uh, jumps into the pyre and takes all the heat with him and becomes the sun. After after that happens, the the other god, uh, the wealthy god, also tries and throws himself into the <laughs> into the pyre, but most of the heat had already been taken, and he only um, takes uh, gets a little bit burned by the embers, and um, and he becomes the moon. Um, we cannot uh, assume that the classic Maya had a story that was just like that. In the Popol Vuh, these heroes do throw themselves into a uh, an oven. And that's how they die. 
later on to, to be reborn and, and become the moon and, and the sun. Um, but, um, but as I say, all of these variations belong to, you know, the, the, um, what Lopez Austin calls the adventurous subjects of myths. And what we should look at is, is the, the nodal subjects of myth, the core elements of myth. And, uh, and those are shared. Those are shared by these uh, ancient Maya heroes uh, depicted in, in uh, classic and pre-classic um, paintings, by the heroes of the Popol Vuh, and by the heroes of modern narratives, uh, both in the Maya area and, and elsewhere. They, they represent uh, that, uh, that contrast that you mentioned between the, a sickly hero uh, who nevertheless is the one who, who will succeed, right? The other one also has a role, you know? The other one also has to play a role. He becomes the moon um, and has a bunch of other connotations. Um, but um, I think that's a, that's a more productive way of looking at, at this, of trying to, uh, instead of um, trying to link together, say, the stories of the Popol Vuh with representations in Maya art and try to find one-to-one -one correspondences between the characters that were painted in the classic period and, and those that were described uh, 800 years later. Um, no, we should not try to, to find uh, such direct analogies, but we should focus on, on the core things that they did, you know, um, and those are the ones who are significant. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today about all of this, about these books. Um, the books obviously go into <clears throat> much more detail and in more directions than we could possibly talk about today. So I encourage people to check them out. The books that we've been discussing are Art and Myth of the Ancient Maya by my guest Oswaldo Chinchilla Masariegos and Lives of the Gods, Divinity in Maya Art, which is co-edited by Oswaldo along with Joanne Pillsbury and James A. Doyle. And it accompanies the exhibition of the same name, which is on view at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Thank you very much for listening. Please visit us online at yalebooks.com for more episodes of the podcast, as well as information about all of our books.